Hey there, and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks. And we are here in Miami, Florida, where just a few short hours from now, the Democrats are going to have their first debate of the uh, of the primary season. Uh, these candidates have seen a lot of each other. Uh, the country hasn't seen much of them as a group. And this is, of course, the first of a very long process. And it comes in the midst of a very busy news cycle. Uh, we're going to cover all of that. Um, we're also later in the program going to bring you a conversation that uh, Mary Bruce and I just had with uh, Julian Castro, the, the HUD secretary, be one of those 10 on the stage tonight. But Mary Alice, g- give us your sense of, of the lay of the land here as we stand here on the eve of the of the first presidential primary debate. There are a lot of candidates who have not really had a chance to introduce themselves to a national audience yet. And so I'm really going to be paying a lot of attention to those who are polling right around the cusp, those one percenter in the polls um, who are looking to have a moment tonight. We're going to see a generational divide on full display on the stage. Uh, There's folks like Congressman Tim Ryan from Ohio who just talks in a way that really reflects how much younger he is than some of the front runners. Um, So a generational divide, but also an ideological divide. We've had a lot of attention focused on the more progressive wing of the party, some of the big ticket policy proposals from Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders. But there are a number of more moderate members of the Democratic Party who are really going to try to distance themselves and distinguish themselves as folks that can work across the aisle and appeal to voters that are looking for someone in the middle. As we know, this is a two-night debate, uh, but I actually think each of those nights can be divided into different parts, and you almost have two different sections in each field. You have the candidates who are able to and and have the fortune of being able to make news by themselves and be considered, quote-unquote, front-running candidates in the polls. And then you have the other folks, the one percenters, as you as you talk about, who need to make a name for themselves. And the challenge, I, as I see it in talking to the campaigns, is for the for the folks that have already established themselves as as viable candidates that have followings and have fundraising bases, they basically don't want to screw up. For the folks who need to to get some traction, they need to make a moment. They need to find a way to contrast themselves with the others on stage. Maybe have something that goes viral. Uh, knowing this is a long process, but that it's a process that winnows itself pretty quickly. I think that's right, Rick. I think that those at the top, I would say, have a little bit more than just a don't screw up uh, mandate, because you have to remember that folks like Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, who we put in that top tier um, camp right now, have not been interacting a lot with the press. They haven't been taking a lot of live questions, mostly have um, tried to uh, to shy away from big live interviews. And, and that could really hurt them on a night like tonight, where the best moments will probably be the ones that come across very natural and authentic in the moment. And so I will be looking really closely to see if someone like Elizabeth Warren can can joust in a live way, um, or, or does she come across a little stiff because she hasn't been putting herself out there to live questioning in a way that some of the others have um, who have been trying to take any questions from any press uh, to get you know as much coverage as possible. And you mentioned Warren, and I want to talk about the news environment for this because, you know, as many of these as I've done, and I've I've been part of probably more than a dozen debates at this point. Uh, of course, this debate is on NBC, so we're not in the uh, in the war room figuring out what the questions are. But Mary Alice, it always strikes me that these are creatures of the news cycle. That whatever is happening in the outside world crashes in. You can plan if you're if you're the moderators to have all these different great ideas for for rounds of questioning. But you are shaped by news events, and you have a couple of very high profile things happening in the midst of this. You have 
big Supreme Court opinions that are about to come down. You have a confrontation with Iran that was uh, that, that almost came to a, a, a head over the weekend until the president called it off. Uh, and of course, you have this crisis on the border. Uh, and, and a number of candidates have been heading to a facility just a few miles south of, of, uh, of Miami here in South Florida to visit a detention facility that uh, is actually privately run where a number of migrant children are taken to. Uh, it's not quite the same situation as the one in Texas, but it is coloring a lot of the debate chatter. And of course, you have to imagine it's going to come up tonight. Over your shoulder as we're having this conversation, Julian Castro, the one Latino in the in the uh, race right now, is walking through the debate stage with his twin brother, sort of checking out the podium, sizing it up, getting a feel for what that space will be like. There's going to be a lot of eyes on him. Um, one thing that's made him unique, not only his sort of ethnic background, but his policy background. He has made immigration and the questions of the border a central part of his campaign in a way that some of the other candidates have not. Um, one of his policy proposals got a big endorsement from Elizabeth Warren just this week, a policy proposal to decriminalize border crossings. I know we have more of that conversation coming up with him, but there's going to be a lot of attention on whether he is going to rise this moment where the border is back in everyone's um, sort of top of mind. And let's talk a little bit about the main event, what we consider to be the main event, Thursday night, Biden versus Bernie. Mary Alice, you covered the Bernie Sanders campaign extensively last cycle. What are you expecting there? That seems like the Sanders people have telegraphed some potential hits against Biden. Uh, Biden is going to try to rise above that fray, but uh, that, that really is a, a matchup. Those are the two candidates by themselves. They're capturing about half the electorate in polls. Uh, Bernie Sanders' team is very sensitive to this idea that Joe Biden is seen as more electable in a head-to-head -head against President Trump. So I anticipate that Senator Sanders is going to try to focus a lot of his uh, pitch tomorrow night on this idea of, of he is actually the one that can both take on President Trump and rev up the base in, in really progressive circles, um, try to rack up the score in Democratic circles in some of the swing states. But you're right, I think it's going to try to draw a contrast over some policy decisions with um, Senator Biden, uh, with former Vice President Biden. We're going to see the senator talking about things like climate change and health care, but also foreign policy, uh, where he thinks he has a really different tact from from Joe Biden. And one thing that, that I'm struck by as these candidates are set to to appear for the first time, as I mentioned, there's been a lot of candidate forums. I've had three different candidates in the last 24 hours that I've had a conversation with that have made the point that it is the first debate, but it sort of doesn't feel like the first debate. They've gotten to know the candidates around them pretty well. They've started started to understand uh, their tendencies. They know some of their verbal tics. They know some of their stories. Uh, that to me is is an interesting insight for the political performances that we're set to see because uh, they will be jousting against each other, reacting to each other in real time. This is not like you get up there and, and, and because you only get seven or eight minutes total over the course of a two hour debate on, on either night, you don't really have a chance to play your own game so much as just respond to the, the questions that are lobbed at you and, and respond to the other candidates on stage. And there's so much more attention on every little detail. We've seen handshakes that go viral or non-handshakes that go viral, eye rolls and facial expressions. Debates are just different. They might feel like they've been doing a lot of of TV appearances and they've been doing a lot of voter town halls, but the stakes are incredibly different when it's the actual debate. There'll be a lot of eyeballs on them and, and our coverage uh, here at ABC News Live is going to start uh, at 8 p.m. And of course, the big debate at nine o'clock will be there to cover all the action. Uh, Mary Alice, thank you. We'll, be, we'll see you at the uh, debate hall soon. Uh, we are going to take a quick break right now. And when we're back, Mary Bruce and I talked to the former HUD secretary, Julian Castro, about his strategy going into tonight.
Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We're pleased to be joined by the former HUD Secretary, Julian Castro, uh, one of the men who will be on that stage uh, in just a few short hours. And we want to talk about your debate preps and, and how you're getting ready for this, uh, this big moment in the spotlight. But I want to start with some policy, because we've seen just in the last few days the, the president's policy toward uh, these migrant families uh, evolve and, and come into the spotlight. And now uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren has come around to a position that you came out uh, first off and said uh, decriminalize the idea of a border crossing. Um, talk me through that, because I, I'm trying to figure out why shouldn't it be illegal to come into the country outside the law, essentially illegally? Uh, it's still penalized. Uh, if you make it a civil matter, it's still penalized. People still have to go through a court system. They're still uh, subject to deportation. The difference is that, and this is the way we used to do it, is civil, not criminal. Uh, the difference is that when they made it criminal, that's when a lot of these problems that we're seeing today really flourished. The only way to make sure that we end family separation is to go from it being a criminal offense to it being a civil offense. So uh, I'm glad that Senator Warren uh, supports the idea of making this a civil offense. It will mean, it will guarantee that we won't have these family separations again. And it doesn't mean that there's not a court process that people are still involved in. They are. Um, it's just a much more sensible way to do this. The other thing that I think uh, is important is I've proposed an immigration plan that gets to the root cause of this challenge. We need to partner with uh, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala so that people can find safety and opportunity over there at home instead of coming to the United States to try and find that. And the mistake that this president has made for all his talk about a wall and, you know, scapegoating of these migrants, what he should have done on January 20th, 2017, is immediately get to work partnering with those Northern Triangle countries so that he would stem the flow of people coming to this country. Because we knew that this was an issue. In 2014 and, and years after that, a lot of people had come from Central America. So on day one, he knew that this was going to be an issue. It's just that he's wasted the last two and a half years ineffectively dealing with this issue of immigration. And you just announced that you're going to be headed to the Homestead Child Detention Center uh, just a few miles here outside of Miami in South Florida on Friday. The folks at Homestead uh, point out that they are a private facility. Uh, this is not the same as the facility, say, in Clint, Texas. Uh, these are people that have already moved through the process of border, uh, of border protection and moved to this, uh, to this private facility. They're also saying that unless you've made arrangements in advance, you can't get in. Is this just a stunt to, to highlight the issue? Well, we're definitely trying to highlight the issue. Um, I wouldn't call it a stunt. I would say that we're calling attention to the fact, number one, that we need to end this kind of detention and make sure that people can get to either family members who live in the United States or caregivers who are willing to take care of them as soon as possible. And also, I would end these private facilities. Uh, we, there's a whole record of problems at these private facilities, uh, and I think that we need to end them. I don't think that the profit motive should be involved in keeping kids like that detained. Uh, and so I would, I would uh, terminate those contracts and find other arrangements for folks. On the other news of the day, the special counsel, Robert Mueller, is now going to be coming up to the Hill and testifying. You've supported a call for impeachment. Nancy Pelosi, though, isn't budging. How does hearing from him publicly change that conversation? Does it tip the scale? He's going to testify in public. He cited in his report 10 different instances where this president obstructed justice or tried to obstruct justice. I'm glad that the American people are going to be able to actually hear his testimony. And when they hear his testimony, I think it's compelling 
that this president should be impeached. Uh, I know why some Democrats uh, have been hesitant to do that. They're concerned, perhaps, about uh, the political risk that that involves. I don't think we should see this first as something political, because we need to say that nobody is above the law, especially the President of the United States. But even if we look at it politically, the mistake that they're making is, if you don't begin impeachment proceedings, what he's going to say in the fall of 2020 is, you see, why didn't they impeach me? They didn't impeach me because they couldn't find anything that I did wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. All of these people that constantly want to investigate me, they have this investigation and that investigation. When it came to this and whether they would actually impeach me, they didn't move forward because I didn't do anything wrong. In other words, he's going to get a clean bill of health, and that's going to be politically worse than if you had not begun. But it's also unclear how forthcoming Mueller is going to be. He said he wants the report to speak for himself. We know Republicans are also coming loaded to bear. They have a lot of questions they want to ask about this process. Is there a risk that this all kind of backfires on Democrats? I don't think so. Uh, People can see that there's substance to this report, substance to the investigation. Even people who approve of the job that the president is doing right now don't see him as an honest person. So they understand that it's likely he committed uh, wrongdoing. And this is going to be one more opportunity for people to hear directly about the findings of that report. When people hear about the findings of that report, I think they're going to be more likely to, to, to support impeachment. I want to ask you, uh, Mr. Secretary, briefly about Iran. Uh, we've seen the president's movements on, on responding to the, the downing of the drone. Beyond, beyond saying that you wouldn't have handled things in the first place, scrapping the original nuclear deal, if President Castro is confronted with the situation where an American drone is shot down by a hostile power, a foreign power, that, has, uh, that admits that they've done as much, what's the right response? Well, I think the first response... Uh, will not necessarily be to go into an all-out war with that nation, um, but to pressure that nation, number one, not to do that again, uh, to pursue economic sanctions and other sanctions with our allies. The problem is that this president has gotten us into this mess in the first place. The reason that everybody is talking about the big failure of this administration when it comes to the Iran nuclear deal is because... Two years ago, we had a deal in place that everybody acknowledged was the strongest deal ever put together to make sure that a country did not develop a nuclear weapon. And then this president came along and he erratically, haphazardly tore up that agreement. And now, because of that, we're in the mess that we're in. I believe that we should work with our allies to pressure Iran to do what we want them to do. Um, We can find some way. Uh, in a commensurate way to act based on what happened with the drone. But I don't think that a war is in the best interest of the United States. So let's get to why we're here tonight. The first debate in this very crowded field. How do you define success tonight on that stage? Well, a lot of people don't know me right now. My name ID is lower than some of the other candidates. Uh, At the end of the debate, I want people to know uh, that I have the right experience to be president, that I have a strong vision for the country's future, that will help them and their family, and that I can beat Donald Trump if I'm the Democratic nominee. There are 10 of you on that stage tonight, though. You're going to have just a few minutes to make your mark. How do you do that? What's the strategy? Well, I mean, you got to just focus on boiling, boiling your points down to one minute. And um, that's part of the disadvantage for all of us of being on a stage with nine other people. 
but those are the rules. Uh, I look forward uh, later in the campaign, probably, of course, to having debates that are smaller. But for right now, it's, look, you know, articulate your vision for the future of the country and your answer on these important issues that people are facing in one minute. And I'm going to try and do that tonight. It's a daunting task, though. How have you been prepping? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I, I get practice all the time when I do these town halls, when I go and do house parties, when I speak in front of voters that have questions about where I stand on the issues. But we've also spent some time just getting ready, trying to put everything into that one-minute frame. And also, we get 45 seconds for a closing statement, right? Oh, Summarize your seconds. life and what you would do for America in 45 seconds. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the tough part of this is... You know, really, if you think about it, this debate is an opportunity for people's interest to be sparked in my candidacy or another person's candidacy and for them to follow up because they're not going to have enough time in this one debate to get a full sense of what everybody is about. But my hope is that people will get a sense that I have strong experience, a strong vision, and that I can beat Donald Trump. And then we have the rest of the campaign. Uh, to, to persuade. And lastly, any debate day superstitions, any special traditions, lucky socks? No, no, none at all, none at all. Uh, I'm going to try and relax as much as possible. Can't you tell today? <laughs> Spending uh, your day talking to all of us. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's important also not over-prepare for something. You know, you want to, tonight is also about being in the moment and being able to relate to people just on a human level and not be overprogrammed. And so I'm going to mostly relax today. Well, good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you. And one other interesting insight from uh, Julian Castro. Uh, Mary Alice mentioned that walkthrough with his brother. He has informed us that if he makes a gaffe on stage, he's going to say that it was his brother who did it. So we'll see if that uh, if that uh, that excuse flies. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. For Mary Alice Parks and Mary Bruce, our thanks to the entire team, Angie Yak, Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller. We'll see you next time.